This is Mike Elgin Radio for Tuesday, January 21st, 2020. The public is generally confused about whether the future of biometric identification, where face recognition and other biometric technologies recognize you everywhere you go, is an Orwellian or dystopian nightmare, or if it'll usher in an era of convenience and security. Adding the confusion to the fact that people think that it's if it's going to be good, it'll happen, and if it's going to be bad, it won't happen. The truth is, I think that it will happen, and that it will be, both be very good, and it will also be very, very bad. One of the things that you read about when it comes to face recognition is the growing protest movement against face recognition's use by cities in general, but like by police departments specifically. Also, students at universities are starting to protest against the use of face recognition on campus. There are three problems with this backlash against biometrics and especially face recognition. And, and that is that the protests are based on a very temporary reality that exists right now that will not exist in the future. The first of these temporary situations is that face recognition uh, is imperfect right now. So most of the campaigns against the police use of face recognition to enforce the law is based on the fact established by numerous uh, research research, uh, studies and so on that face recognition varies based on race and gender. Uh, it's uh, face recognition when applied to black people is generally less accurate than it is applied to white people. And it's generally more accurate applied to men than it is to women. And therefore people don't want the police using it because they fear that the number of people who are falsely uh, implicated by face recognition be most likely minorities and women. But that's temporary. There's going to be a point at some time in the future, probably within three years, I mean, it's coming up soon, where face recognition will be 99.9% accurate for everyone, every race and every gender. And at which point do, does anybody think that the people currently protesting against face recognition will say, Oh, it's all accurate now. So great. We love it. Uh, please, police, use this 100% accurate technology. Uh, we, we, we just were bothered by the fact that it was there were variations in its uh, success rate. No, I don't think that's going to be the case. I don't really think that's really the, the thing that bothers people about face recognition. It's inaccuracy. I think it's, it, it's accuracy is the very thing that bothers people. Another problem with protesting against face recognition is the fact that the supremacy or the primacy of face recognition as a biometric technology used by the police, by organizations, by governments, by corporations, by individuals, itself is temporary. We started off with fingerprint as the number one biometric identification system. We've, we're now transitioning to face recognition as the number one, but there are future technologies, thanks to artificial intelligence, that will be 
more accurate, more useful, more applicable in more situations than face recognition. Uh, these include things like gait recognition, the way people walk. This is going to be a, a great way to recognize people if you, even if you can't see their face. With face recognition, somebody who's going to break the law or wants to evade face recognition can just wear a mask or they can wear groucho glasses or they can wear a scarf over their face or they can just have a, you know, pull their hat down or whatever. With gait recognition, that's not so easy. You know, it's very, it's harder to mask how you walk than it is to mask your face. There are lots of other um, technologies that uh, that are are becoming kind of perfected over the next few years. Uh, most of them are pretty gross and disgusting. Uh, there is ear canal recognition, so earbuds are emerging where you put in the earbud and it's like, oh, I know who, whose ear canal this is. Other technologies are based on the ear, including uh, not measuring the shape of the ear canal, but the veins inside the ear canal. Other technologies can recognize people by the shape of their external ear. There are lots of vein-based recognition. You use the right kind of light, you shine it at somebody's skin, you see vein patterns. One of the beauties of this, and it's bad news for twins, is that twins have different vascular uh, systems. So if you use a, a system, whether it's the palm or the back of the hand or the chest or the face or even the, the vessels within the ear, all of these are emerging technologies, you get a really uh, definite print, even if people are identical twins. Other technologies are based on uh, the, you know, measuring the uh, skin patterns generally, not just the vein patterns. Body odor is really gross. There's DNA matching. If you saw Gattaca, you know how DNA matching works. Basically, you take anything from somebody's body, their hair, the flakes of skin, the, anything, and you run it through a system and you get a you get a, a map of their DNA or you get a you basically get an output. It doesn't even matter what the output is, it could be a number, but each person's DNA is different, except for twins. Twins have the same DNA. Identical twins have the same DNA. But what is really coming is a world in which people who are looking to biometrically identify people will use multiple technologies at the same time. The Pentagon is starting to work on one of these. They're throwing a lot of money at uh, thermal recognition technology. So if you, if you have systems for measuring the temperature in a very high res resolution way, uh, and you point that at a person and run it through AI, you can do lots of things at the same time. So for example, you can use that thermal imaging to do face recognition. You can use the thermal imaging to do gait recognition. You can use the thermal imaging to do, to, to recognize the v pattern of the vascular system, looking kind of like through the skin a bit. And the Pentagon's requirements, they basically put out a bid and said, here are our requirements, is that they need to be able to recognize people through windshields when it's foggy, when there's strong backlight, and they need to be able to do it from as far away as 500 meters. Now we know how this goes, right? The Pentagon invests in something. Uh, they throw a bunch of money at it. They deploy it very rapidly to soldiers. The spies get their hands on it right away. And within, you know, five, 10 years, 
This technology is built into consumer electronics devices available at Best Buy. This is what happened with cell phones. It's what happened with the internet. It's what happened with GPS and lots of other things. So anything that the Pen Pentagon is, is, it doesn't create technology that would otherwise never be created. They simply take really promising technologies and they accelerate them. So they get them first, right? But after they've, you know, after it gets mainstreamed, everybody will get it. And so the, the use of thermal imaging for broad spectrum biometric identification at distances is coming. It's coming to police departments. It's coming to consumers, you know? And so the idea that, well, maybe we, maybe if we protest against face recognition, we can live the rest of our lives in a world where we can't be biometrically identified. This is not going to happen. The, the, the biometric ID is coming. And the, uh, the reason that it's coming is not because the people who want to do biometric identification will overwhelm the desire of the public. The reason is that the public will demand it. The public is going to love biometric identification. When you ask somebody, do you want to live in a world where you are recognized everywhere you go? People will say no. But if you ask somebody, do you want to live in a world where you don't have to wait in line anymore? For example, you go to the store, shop for your groceries and take it straight out of the car. You don't have to go wait in line for the cashier. You don't have to pull out your credit card. You don't even have to carry a wallet. Just everywhere you go, you can buy anything uh, just with your face. You know, this, this sort of technology is already spreading in China with people buying things with, you know, they just do face recognition. But in the future, and, and of course, Amazon is driving this with their Amazon Go grocery store concept. They've got a a store or two, Amazon, or maybe more, where they're, they're beta testing various technologies for automating the store. So with the Amazon Go concept, what they're working toward is a system where you walk in, you, as you're walking around, it's constantly recognizing who you are. Oh, it's that person. Here's the, you know, that, that person is associated with this Amazon Prime account. Then you pick something up. They're like all kinds of technologies using image recognition and also even the weight of the, off the shelf. If you pick up a, a, a can of tuna off the shelf in this grocery store, one technology that, that Amazon has tested is that, okay, now the, sh the shelf is, is a very exact scale that measures weight. And it knows that the shelf is now lighter uh, to the extent that's exactly the same as one can of tuna. And therefore, Joe Schmo with this Prime account picked up one can of tuna and walked out the store. So we'll just charge that on his account. Of course, Amazon owns Whole Foods. It's not like they they have no way to, to push out this concept. They also have stores that are mostly bookstores, but also sell all kinds of Amazon stuff. And so, you know, uh, Amazon is a major brick-and-mortar retailer now. And they're, they're really driving this technology, as are lots and lots of different companies. The dream is to get rid of the cashiers. People are going to love that. Biometric identification will improve public safety. It'll make cars safer. I wrote an article about how the cars of the future will have these sensors that always pay attention to what's happening inside the car. They'll know who's driving, who's in the back seat, what's going on. And, and they'll sort of monitor people all the time. And it'll help a lot if they know exactly who is in the car doing whatever it is they're doing. They'll also be able to customize things, set the 
chair, the seat in the car, adjust the music, temperature, everything according to your personal preferences based on who you are, based on recognizing you. We'll have better health care. We'll have better national security. And these are the kinds of things that will make people say, yeah, I want that. I, I, I would, people would choose, people are already choosing biometrics over non-biometrics. And almost every major smartphone now has either fingerprint recognition or face recognition or both. And you can choose to not use those features and instead type in a passcode. But most people choose the biometric entry into their phone. And, and this is the trend going forward. IBM did a survey that found uh, an acceptance rate of 67% who say they're comfortable. But the younger the people, the more comfortable they are with biometrics. 75% of millennials say they're comfortable with biometric security. So the way to look at about the future of biometric security is not to think of it as being all good or all bad. It's going to be very, very good. It's going to make life much more convenient. It's going to solve some of the problems that exist within enterprise security. You know, enterprise security specialists are in this arms race with cyber criminals, basically. And w without biometric security and artificial intelligence, their only recourse is to make the system so onerous to use, so difficult to use for users, that that itself becomes this huge problem. But with Artificial intelligence combined with biometrics will be able to have much better cybersecurity in, within companies and, and extend that to, to their customers uh, than would otherwise be possible. And so employees at enterprises are going to really demand this. But that's not to say that it's going to be this wonderful paradise. It's also going to be horrible because we're going to live in this sci-fi dystopia where everywhere you go, everything will, you know, you walk down the street, police cameras built into the street lights will recognize you. Walk by every ATM, the ATM will recognize who you are. People, the cameras and dash cams that people have built into their cars that are parked along the side of the road will recognize who you are. Uh, you walk into a store, they'll recognize who you are. You'll be recognized all of the time. And when you drive down the street, uh, cameras will recognize your license plate and they'll recognize your face. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be as unpleasant as it sounds. It'll be very, very bad and also very, very good at the same time. But it's definitely coming. So there's no, there's no stopping it at this point. And again, it's not because... Nobody, everybody wants to stop it and nobody can. There's no stopping it because everybody's going to want it. My friend Kashmir Hill wrote a piece for the New York Times, which uh, was published for the Sunday edition on Saturday, electronically, that kind of blew the Internet's mind because basically the headline is The Secretive Company That Might End Privacy As We Know It. And in that article, she wrote about a company called Clearview AI, founded by somebody named Hoan Tun That, who is a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, formerly of Australia, of Vietnamese descent, I believe. And he has been 
offering his product, Clearview, to police departments, something like 600 so far. And basically, Clearview is an app where you take a picture of somebody. Great for cops, right? So you arrest somebody, take their picture, and you see public photos of that person and associated with those photos, of course, you get information. So, for example, typical scenario is you take their picture. One of the photos is Facebook. You go to Facebook. Oh, there's the name. There's the spouse. There's the address. There's, you know, all kinds of information. Uh, If you have the name and, you know, the gender and the age and things like that, you can then do public databases to find out where people live, their home address, their phone number. You can find out who all their relatives are, the history of where they lived, their criminal record, and it goes on and on and on. And everybody's blown away by this uh, technology. But what's interesting about it, and I think there's not enough conversation about it, is that this this technology is not uh, about the technology. In other words, the technology is not the thing that makes this creepy. This guy didn't uh, invent uh, significantly new technology. What he did was he built an app that uses technology that's been around uh, for a long, long time. And uh, for example, three years ago, I wrote an article saying that you can take somebody's picture and you can find out their home address. I just used that as an example, but there's lots of other information you could find. But I just said, okay, you can take a picture, you can get their home address in three minutes. Here's how to do it. And I gave a step-by-step instructions for exactly how to do that using a Russian app. So what the Russian app did was it did part of what Clearview does. And so I basically said, okay, step one, you take a picture. Step two, you upload that picture into this Russian app. Step three is you see a whole bunch of pictures. A lot of them are false positives. A lot of them are real ones. But I was consistently able with like something like half of the of the tests that I did to bring up people's Twitter pictures, their MySpace of all things. Shocking to discover that MySpace still existed. Facebook, etc. And then, you know, of course, that gives you the name and the age and where they live sometimes or other information where they work maybe. And then with that information, you can go to these public databases where you can get people's, you know, phone lookup and, and, and history of where they lived and who their relatives are and who their ex-wife is and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but the address is the most, you know, you go to, you go to ancestry.com back then, three years, I don't know about now, but back three years ago, you could, if you had a name, you could go to and say, okay, I, I know this person's name is John Smith. And I know that, well, that's John Smith's hard because that's a very common name. But if they had a less common name, you roughly, you know, their gender, you know, their age, you go to ancestry.com and you can find that person. And they'll say, well, here's their current address. And here's the address where they lived 10 years ago. And here's where they went to high school and all this kind of stuff. So that, you know, that, that was shocking to people then that Russian app, I think sort of went underground. I'm not sure exactly what happened to them, but they're not available like they used to be. Something happened. I don't know if they were shut down by governments or probably more likely they were purchased by a government or a spy agency or something like that. But again, this, this, this idea, the technologies that Clearview AI is using are no big deal, right? So all they're doing is they're taking a photo, they're doing photo matching, 
right? Which is, uh, you know, they're doing face recognition and then applying that uh, to other photos that exist on the internet. This is technology that Facebook has and that Google has and that lots of companies have. And then once you know where the photo is, you you you, you know, it's a, if it's a, especially if it's a social account, it's a question of crawling the internet for photos and the pages that those photos are associated with where you get names and things. So, you know, it's, it's not a technology. There's nothing, there's no big deal about the technology. It's zipping it up into a convenient to use app. That is the, uh, the secret sauce here. Anyone could do it. You know, any entrepreneur could do this. And this guy's just shameless enough to do it. And, you know, figures that, okay, we're going to sell this to the police. The other thing's interesting with, uh, with, with Kashmir's reporting is that she found that uh, if you examine the code of the app, you can see that they have been experimenting with building this into artificial, you know, in, into augmented reality glasses. So best case scenario, if you are an Orwellian police person or something like that, you walk around with something like Google Glass, you look at someone and it tells you their name their address, their, whether they have a criminal record, what their driver's license number is, etc. You can imagine how police would love something like this. Because, of course, everybody, you know, criminals, not everybody, criminals always lie to the police, right? So it'd be great to get some straight answers from the internet if you're, a, a, you know, a cop. Uh, so it was an interesting article. Kashmir is the number one privacy writer, reporter, uh, out there right now. She used to be, I think with Gizmodo and now she's, you know, the New York times, uh, grabbed her and now she works for the New York times. Anyway, it's, uh, this kind of technology, everybody's talking about how, Oh, there's new technology. No, there's no new technology in any of this. This is the inevitable result. And mark my words, there's a lot more of this coming of the fact that we have technology that does face recognition that can match this photo to that photo. You see it every day when you use Google Photos. Just go to search Google Photos, pick a face, and it'll show you every instance of that face pretty, pretty well. Google and Facebook also, by the way, have technology, and so do other companies, that can surmise recognition even when your face isn't recognizable. For example, I posted on my blog at elgin.com recently the fact that uh, I took a picture of my two nieces. We are in El Salvador uh, over the over the uh, holidays, and I I was not in the picture, but I I held my camera out and I was basically showing them the feature in the Google Pixel phone where if you smile, it'll take a picture. So I said, "Oh, here, smile," and they smiled and it took a picture and it got sucked up into my Google Photos and. Google Photos, when you search for me, <clears throat> you've got this picture. And the only thing visible in that picture was my hand in the reflection of one of my niece's sunglasses. Google still recognized that as my hand. right? I don't think they're recognizing my hand. I think they're recognizing other pictures that were taken in the same place, in the same light, where I was wearing the same shirt. Uh, and they knew it was my camera. It's a, they're piecing together all this information and saying, ah, Aha, that's Mike's hand. Okay, so that technology is out of the bag. It's out there. 
And so we are entering in, into an era, and it just takes people like uh, Mr. Tonvat to put these things together into an easy-to-use app, into smart glasses, into any sort of app they want. Because anybody can take a picture from any of anyone from vast distances. You can upload that picture to the internet and apply picture matching where you say, okay, show me other instances of this person. All right, take me to the websites where those photos are posted and get the other information. And from there, you can just piece together a whole dossier on anyone just from a picture you took from a half a mile away. Not new technology. This is already aging technology. And so if you are super privacy focused, be aware that if on every web page where your face is posted, anyone who takes a picture of you or captures a picture of you on a surveillance camera or whatever will have access to the information on those pages where your face is. That your face is the gateway drug, it's the connective tissue of recognition to all of your textual information, you know, your, your address, phone number, etc. So it's something we need to know. Uh, this is the new world we live in, and, uh, and it's going to get more interesting as we go forward and more people put these things together in easy-to-use websites, services, and apps. I'm here with Kevin Elgin, who uh, owns a company called Chatterbox. He's the founder and creator of Chatterbox, the product, and scooching. And um, he's also my son. And uh, he shipped his first version of Chatterbox in December before Christmas. And why don't you explain what Chatterbox is exactly? Yes, uh, Chatterbox is a smart speaker for kids. Think of it like a Amazon Alexa, but one that um, kids actually have to build and teach. And so we started off uh, on this project uh, around the time that my daughter was born. and um, Three years ago? <clears throat> three years. Yeah, in, 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 uh, in, different, in a different regard, but yes. Um, and really the question that I was kind of faced with was uh, as a lover of technology, how do I expose and prepare my child for technology without, um, you know, turning her into this screen obsessed zombie? Preparing kids for the future is a cliche <clears throat> in educational technology education. And uh, are you using your phone as a coaster? Yes, absolutely. Holy crap. And you don't have a case on it even. I do have a case. Oh, okay. That's what makes it a, co a coaster. <laughs> coaster case. That's a great... <laughs> anyway, uh, so, so I love this product. And to the best of my knowledge, there's literally nothing like it at all. I mean, I think... it's So first of all, the, the, the outer case of the Chatterbox is cardboard. That's why it's called Chatterbox, because it's literally a box that you talk with and that talks to you and has a button on top. And I love this product. There's, To me, preparing kids for the future with a Chromebook or an iPad is preparing them for the past. By the time they get into high school and college and get into the workforce, they're not going to have Chromebooks. They're going to be talking to computers like Star Trek. And the voice interface is going to come to be the predominant, nothing's going away in terms of interfaces, but the predominant way people will interact with computers and the internet is going to be talking 
uh, like the Amazon Echo, like Siri, etc. And the problem is that it's going to get so good, the, the natural language speech and the AI is going to get so good. I mean, look at Google's um, duplex. duplex, which says, <clears throat> uh, uh, like they're simulating all the bugs and ticks of human speech to the point where nobody can understand, nobody can tell that it's, that it's a computer they're talking to. And the problem is that the human psychology is such that people will just come to believe that they're people. That they're, you know, they, even if they know intellectually they're not people, if you grow up talking to this AI voice, right, you're going to treat it like a person. You're going to think it's a person. It's going to be completely casting an illusion on you. And so part of the mission of Chatterbox is for kids to understand at a very early age, seven and up, right? Seven and up. That it's not a person. It's just an appliance that human beings control and everything that a AI voice does it does that because a human being programmed it to do that and so they learn this by building the device putting the electronic components together and then they teach it with a visual interface and it doesn't do anything for the most part except for some back-end stuff Unless they teach it to do it and this is like I think this is like a massively powerful concept well just playing and riffing on the idea of, of preparing kids for the future, um, I don't think of Chatterbox as, hey, you know, like a vocational training tool. No. We're not trying to teach kids programming uh, so they can be developers. So because the highest paying job out of college is, you know, computer science, you know, job. It's not the first it, it's, step it's, toward a career in programming it, AI interfaces. But that is, that is not preparing kids for the future. Preparing kids for the future is essentially... Um, it's not about learning to code. It's about learning to think and giving kids a, um, you know, kind of an easel, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, some, some type of, uh, platform that they can then create with and, and start practicing communication, start practicing, you know, how, how do I make, if, if I want, if I have one condition, like when it's raining and it's, you know, eight o'clock or something like that, um, you know, get kids to actually start, you know, making, making little, little hacks and little, little programs that, you know, just are fun. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they can be using weather, you know, APIs, they could be using, um, you know, a Raspberry Pi, which is the base of, of Chatterbox, plus, you know, combine it with, um, you know, um, a connected light bulb. So when it wakes them up, it and if it's raining outside, the light bulb, you know, turns on with a certain color. There, there's a whole bunch of a, a whole bunch of things that kids can do, and it's again not a matter of hey, follow this or do this. It's just getting kids to understand that hey, you can plug this technology with this technology with this technology, and then you'll get a result, and then you can do that again. And then the more and more you do that, the more they get. Um, they're, they're practicing their critical thinking through um, through discovery and play. It also teaches kids, and one of the problems with smartphones and video games and any sort of screen-based technology that kids are spending way too much time with these days, is that those technologies make kids less able to interact with a human being, less inclined to do so, whereas Chatterbox makes kids better at interacting with human beings because in order to construct the... <clears throat> The dialogue they're essentially building dialogue between themselves and the chatterbox. They need to learn to be able to express themselves in words in a way that is clear. 
And then they need to sit there and think about how, what the response is. So that it's all very clear. And so you're actually, you know, they think they're having fun creating and building and, and exploring and doing all this stuff. But one of the many things that's happening in their minds is they're learning to construct clear English language interactions. Absolutely. I actually, just um, this reminds me of um, something I just listened to on the Techno Skeptic podcast with uh, Josh Golan from the Campaign for Commercial Free Childhood. Was on there talking about kids and and uh, connected devices, IoT, and, and all of that stuff. And he was essentially saying that um, um, if you recall, like a couple of years ago, Hello Barbie came out uh, yep. by Mattel. And he was comparing Hello Barbie with just kids playing with the stuffed animal. And the difference, in, and I, I guess I never really thought about this too much until I heard it put this way, but um, giving kids a doll, it, it could be a Barbie, a non-connected Barbie or whatever, mm -hmm. um, still forces kids to actually create conversations. And that is the creative process where they're they're making discussions between different characters, telling a story, and and that's wonderful. Even if it is a Barbie, you know, whatever. It's like, um, but then when you introduce a connected Barbie, like the Hello Barbie, um, it was um, leading kids through a scripted conversation that was designed by adults in you know a conference room talking about you know um, you know kids were telling it about school, and this was the example that Josh used. Uh, kids were telling you about school, and it said, "How about we talk about fashion?" And and let's so, go shopping, right? Exactly, and that's the issue right yeah. there. And so, um, likewise, you know, Amazon Alexa and Google, you know, they're in control with you know what it can say and how it's going to say it and all of that stuff. And and we're trying to flip that a little bit with Chatterbox and put kids in the driver's seat. Kids yeah. have to uh, decide what it can talk about, what it won't talk about, if it's going to have personality, um, what that personality is going to, going to be like or not be like. And and we're just trying to give control um, and power to kids. The worst children's connected product that I've ever heard of, which never made it a market, was it Mattel? It was called Aristotle. Aristotle. Was it? Aristotle. So Aristotle was like an Amazon Echo, but it was designed to essentially babysit your kids. It would, would not do anything unless the kid said please or thank you, which basically trains kids that that AI is not only human, but it's an authority figure that needs to be obeyed. It was actually was, worse than that yeah. because um, they were marketing it as a companion for parents. So yeah. uh, when your baby wakes up at night, it would, um, uh, instead of parents you know, waking up and, and tending to their child, uh, it would put on a light show and play music just to entertain the kids. And it would also read bedtime <clears throat> stories to exactly. them. Exactly. Like you know, and the, and the problem with that is it's trying to get in between uh, of, you know, interpersonal, you know, relationships, mm -hmm. right? Which is the exact wrong thing that technology should be doing. Absolutely. And, um, and, and that's kind of, we had that in mind when, when you know, we started making chatterbox. So. Aristotle reminds me of a series of experiments they did in the 60s or 70s or 80s, I don't know, it was a long time ago, where they tried to, to simulate all the technical aspects of a mother for a baby monkey. <laughs> and so they had this, they had a furry-like object, but it wasn't a, it was just a, you know, it was just a cylinder with hair on it, and it was warm, and they, it had a nipple, and so it fed them, and gave them all the, like, technically, it gave them all the things that a mother would give, but it wasn't a mother, and of course, those monkeys grew up, and I think they 
escaped and killed all the scientists and, and or maybe that was Planet of the Apes. But <laughs> it was a disaster. They, 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 the monkeys were completely insane mm -hmm. because, because children and babies need shock. They need their parents. They need human beings to be their parents and to take care of them. Like, and so anyway, Aristotle was a vile product. But I want to talk about two aspects of Chatterbox that I think are super important and part of the theme of this podcast, which is that you know one of them is the you know we're we're all facing a future where there's AI everywhere, and we're also face, facing a future of total surveillance of surveillance capitalism and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things that bothers me about the Amazon Echo and Google, you know, home and Siri, whatever it's called, all that stuff is that these things are always listening. Yes, they're listening for wake word, but we know from various reports that sometimes they just start recording <clears throat> randomly and upload everything. But what bothers me is for kids to grow up and just think, well, what's normal is for there to be an AI for there to be a company listening all the time, just waiting for me to say the magic word so that it will respond. Whereas Chatterbox, you deliberately made it so that it wasn't listening all the time. You have to push a button. And so pushing the button means, okay, now I want you to listen to me. And, and children grow up knowing that it's not listening. I think that's much healthier for kids for, than for them to grow up and go, oh, just, you know, their microphone's on all the time, 24-7, always listening. That's normal. Like, it's not good for them to think that's normal. Uh, totally, and and that's that's the whole tech literacy piece of of Chatterbox, which is we want kids to understand technology, how it works. Free isn't necessarily free. If something is free, it's probably because you are the product. Mm -hmm. um, and these are these are lessons that I, I think you know kids really need to understand. Um, and you know you see parts of you see hints of it now. Um, I got my generation was you know the generation of like Facebook, and um, but then the the kids after that aren't necessarily on Facebook just like you know completely you know, posting every single picture mm -hmm. um, privately. I mean uh, publicly, um, whereas you know that's what I used to do, and I've just kind of stopped doing that at yeah. some point. Um, but I think you know it's just gonna get more. Um, it's just going to get harder to kind of tell uh, the difference between real and fake. And you yeah. see that with uh, deep fakes. You see that with, it's just. We, fake we, Instagram personalities. Exactly. There's, there's fake everything now. And Did you hear that there's one fake Instagram personality, totally CGI, who went on a rant on, on, on Instagram about how she was sexually assaulted? Oh, God. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's And, you know, people, like, people don't, for, the first the, the one disturbing thing is that they don't know that it's fake. And the other, mo even more disturbing thing is that they know it's fake, but they don't care. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> a fake person is just as well as a good... And that's unhealthy, I think. And I think, I, I think, well, continuing that trend, um, I've had conversations, um, you know, from, with parents, uh, and those parents were, you know, tech, you know, were in the tech industry. Um, one of them had a company that, you know, was making, you know, um, Echo Skills. Mm -hmm. But, um, they, you know, they weren't concerned with their kids understanding the difference between real and fake. And so this is something that we just, that, that, that parents don't know how to kind of grapple with. And I liken it to kind of, um, you know, health food. It's like, is, is a calorie a calorie a calorie? 
Um, or is there good food and bad food? And, and is there any difference between orange juice, freshly squeezed orange juice from the orange tree in your backyard, or Fanta? Is, yeah. is it all the same? Is there any difference between corn syrup that's flavored as maple and maple syrup? Like, I think it's important that people know the difference. I think kids, it, kids. I, I think it's important that that people know the difference, and um, more importantly, it's like as an adult, you can you're free to make you know whatever decision you you want to make. If you like Aunt Jemima's versus maple syrup, fine. That, that that's a decision that you can make. If you're a sociopath, kids kids can't make those decisions right. for themselves, and so I, I just think it's you know we. It's our duty to take every opportunity that we have to educate our kids about what's real and what's fake. And, right. and that will only help them understand the world that they're going to grow up in, which I think we can all agree we don't know what that world is going to necessarily look like. Right. So it, it's a matter of you know, giving them um, all the opportunity to, to you know, observe, think, and kind of um, make sense of the you know, whatever's in front of them. One of the things, yeah, one of the things you're up against is that companies like Amazon is really targeting kids. So Amazon has, like, if you don't have young kids in the house, you haven't probably been heavily targeted by Amazon for their many products around kids. But they have, like, all kinds of stuff where, oh, you sign up for this thing, you get unlimited children's books, and you can get a kid's, what is it called, a kid's Echo? Echo Dot. Echo Dot for kids, and they're brightly colored, and they're super cheap, like, way cheaper than Chatterbox. 20 bucks. Uh, but but in, in reality, they're way more expensive. Those things cost about $10,000, because that's the extra money that Amazon will make for, from, from addicting a lifelong consumer as a child. It's the McDo Ronald McDonald marketing plan that, that Amazon is all in on. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're collecting information uh, on, on kids and, and, and they want to get them into the, into the Borg right away so they can have a lifelong, <clears throat> endless marketing. And this is one of the things I love about Ch Chatterbox. There is no marketing ever. No, there's no collection of information. If you wanted to market like contextual advertising to kids, you would have no idea who they are, or what their preferences are, or what their name is, or anything. Like or you, you, it's like super private, and and there's no there's no future plan. Oh, in the future we're going to sell them like all. No, there's no selling. And, and you're it, not going to sell them anything. And and it's funny. I was um I was speaking at um uh, it was kind of a digital tools for kids and AI and privacy kind of conference that I was speaking at. And um, I literally had probably 10 companies come up saying that they want to uh, create content for our platform yeah. to just try to hook kids with, with that, with that exact kind of model, yeah. business model. Right. And, and that is what everybody's trying to do yeah. is just try and kind of manipulate kids. It, it, at the end of the day, it's manipulation. That, that's yeah. what it is. Um, and kids don't know that they're necessarily being manipulated, and um, and that's just not in it for us. That's not what we're trying to do. And 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 a lot of schools actually buy into various products that essentially are subsidized by marketing to kids. I mean, even vending machines and the, but also educational materials, Chromebooks, Chromebooks, and and so your your value prop. I mean, it's, it's a very difficult thing to communicate because. Teachers like you know they have pretty strict budgets. They have you know the limited budgets, and 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 so you know some other product will go and they go oh this is like you know this is fifty bucks and and no it isn't it's it's like they're going to be extracting money out of those kids by just commercializing. It's supposed to be educational, but it's a, it's a commercial education blend. Whereas you your proposition is 
The cost of the product is the cost of the product, and there's no future monetization for that product. <laughs> it's a tough business. Yeah. It, it, it definitely is, but um, you know the the reward is kind of you know the effect that it has on kids. Yeah, right. Where we're not trying to um, you know there's no in-app purchases, and we're not trying to guilt kids and manipulate kids. Um, the same time, at the same time, it's um, you know when it comes to education, there's there's Montessori methods and mm -hmm. like Waldorf methods and, and all that stuff. And, and then there's, you know, these packaged, you know, kind of experiences that, that, yeah. um, that kids go through to learn, you know, X, Y, Z. And again, that's not what we're doing. We're trying to get kids to, you know, give them a platform for their imagination, their creativity, um, and kind of take, take all of that together and, and actually try to teach. And we really think that the best way to learn is to teach and as soon as you give kids just you know the this the littlest ability to um to make something their own yeah. and, and and kind of you know put their influence on something they just their eyes light up and, I mean, they, 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 and they love it they absolutely love it this is the user experience of chatterbox basically you go to you you build the chatterbox and then you go online to get the to get the step-by-step -step instructions for how to program it and basically chatterbox um, basically says if, if you if you just take a chatterbox and you hit the button and you say something to it it will say I don't know how to do that can you teach me so you you put the you put the ch the the, ch the student the child the child becomes the teacher and the chatterbox is the student and like you say that's the way to really learn something is to teach it and so it's really it's really a, it's a beautiful thing man yeah it's it's been fun and and you know, we we now have chatterboxes in twenty five countries around the world, and it's been, it's it's been a lot of fun. It's been a very challenging, but um, but the signs are like you know trending in in exactly where I was hoping they'd be trending, where people just want to know how to you know make their chatterboxes do more. Yeah. So now that that's kind of where we're focused on uh, this year is how can we get kids and get kids to create more and more advanced. Um, uh, advanced skills and and quite frankly they just want they're you know what they're doing is they're just creating their own Amazon Echo you yeah. know or Google Home right. but one that speaks with the personality that they want and uh, the byproduct of all of that is they understand how technology yeah. works how uh, APIs work and a whole bunch of you know uh, different things so. yeah and and of course the the, um, the people listening to this podcast are not children they're adults and probably almost everyone listening to this is like, I want one. The, I think I think you're going to get a, always have a two-digit percentage of your customers are going to be adults who just want to secure a private uh, a smart speaker that they can program as a as a you know as a fun thing to do, uh, and and have it be super customized. And of course, Chatterbox can do a lot of things that Echo can't do. Yeah, and actually, a lot of our users are. Um, our parents who happen to be techies and, and like the fact that they can teach their chatterbox how to do something for their kids in, in a period of like 10 seconds. Yeah. So it, it's super, super simple and, and yeah, it's, it's been fun. All right. Well, congratulations on shipping and uh, this is going to be a great year for chatterbox. 2020 is going to be amazing because you're going to, you're going to start uh, talking to schools more. I mean, you're already in a few schools, but like you're going to start talking because I think that's the school. The school, uh, as a as a 
a product for schools, I think it's, it's just so wonderful and for many, many reasons. But one of them is exactly what we were talking about before. Is something really ugly and horrible about you have this captive audience of children and you require them to get to be plugged into this marketing program where they're going to be, you know, marketed to. That's the wrong way to go with kids. Here's a product that is, there's no marketing. This is about them, their education, their creativity, and them having fun, learning all kinds of things without even trying to learn those things. They're just trying to have fun with it. And, and you know, at the end of the day, we're an impact focused company and we just think that uh, we could reach a lot more kids in schools and we can uh, reach kids different ways and, and kids from different backgrounds who live who learn different ways because uh, Chatterbox itself is a blended kind of experience it's part physical like you actually have to physically build it and then you also have to you know teach it uh, mm -hmm. and that's the digital part so yeah uh, and then using it is all through voice so we really think we can kind of reach different kinds of learners learners from you know Walks. You're part of the open source movement, you're part of the cardboard movement, you're part of the screenless technology for kids movement, and you're part of the commercial free childhood movement. Yeah. So it's, it's really awesome. Anyway, uh, we should talk again about other aspects and find out what, you know, in a few months, let's find out what, what some of your customers are doing with the chat awesome. box. Definitely. And just for fun, I spoke with swimming expert and my granddaughter. Princess Squishy Face. It's like a phone. It's like a phone. That's right. This is my microphone. So, I understand that you went swimming today. Is that right? Yeah. Mom and me went under. I see. And it was your swimming class? And then, it's, its name is Miss Paulina. Okay, that's your teacher? Yeah. And, and you said you went under? You mean you went underwater? Yeah. No. No, Mom and me went underwater. Both of you? Yeah, both of us. And was it fun? Yeah. And then the other kids go under too. Really? So everybody went underwater? Yeah, we we both went under. Everybody went under too, like me and Mama. I see. That must have been so fun. Yeah. So I remember, remember when we were in El Salvador yeah. and we were swimming in the ocean? Remember the beach? Yeah. That was so fun. Yeah, that was really so fun. Yeah, that was really so fun. And then, and then, and then I went, and then I went, I then went under. No, not in the, not at the beach. No. No, no, you didn't go under, but you did play in the sand. Yeah. And you played in the shallow water. Yeah. Yeah, that was really fun. With Chloe. With Chloe, that's right. And what else did we do in El Salvador? Did you do dancing? Yeah. And did we eat a lot of food? Yeah. Yeah, that was fun, right? Yeah. Okay. All right, well, thank you for talking to me on, on my microphone. Say bye. Bye. If you love Mike Elgin Radio, please give it a glowing review and a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can find the show notes and links for this podcast, as well as my columns, blog posts, newsletters, and more at elgin.com. Thanks for listening.